Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Angie. I am delighted to have you as my guest today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have never met. We're sitting here uh, on the podcast as if we're seated at a coffee shop meeting for the very first time. Uh, We're going to ask you what your big idea or bold opinion is here in just a minute. Um, uh, You're an author, so we're going to talk about your book. Um, I'm, I'm looking at a copy of it right now. Big bright cover, uh, big 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 idea. Uh, so we're going to let our listeners know all about your book during our conversation today. But before we dive into the uh, your big idea and what it is the message in your book, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, Jason, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I'm really excited about the conversation we strangers are about to have <laughs> for the next forty or so minutes. Uh, yeah. but- But by way of introduction, my story is I grew up in a really small town in northern Michigan, and all I wanted to do was leave. I was a big reader, and I knew that there was this big world out there. So my first big step was going to the University of Michigan. And for some reason, that wasn't enough. So after college, I went into the Marine Corps and served four years and had a phenomenal experience. I spent most of my time at Marine Corps Base Hawaii and then left transitioned to the private sector, and started working in a pharmaceutical sales industry. And what dawned on me during this experience was not just how profound the Marine Corps was on my life and perspective as a human, but also as a leader working within business. And what really 
was telling was just listening to how people talked about leadership in the private sector like it was a manager or a place on an org chart. And I learned in the Marine Corps that leadership is a verb. Everybody should strive to lead. And so that presented an opportunity. So in 2004, dating myself here, I wrote my first book on leadership, Leading from the Front, and started building my consultancy and helping professionals learn, grow, develop their leadership skills. So today, in this year here, I've got three books that I've written, Bet on You and Spark and Leading from the Front. And I just love to talk about leadership and taking risks and helping people realize their potential. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, we can go. Any, we can go in all three of those directions, and um, and I wish I could say that as an author myself, who's only managed to accomplish a book of about a hundred, I think it was one hundred and twenty pages long, and it stretched me in more directions than I could possibly have gone. And the second one is 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 is. Uh, let's just say we've set it down and let it breathe for a while. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's fine just, wine. <laughs> it's just not coming together. Yeah, it. Uh, uh, I I put it together. Uh, the the first draft really uh, was actually put together and put in front of the editor um, post the pandemic, and and it, it just read like a pandemic story. And so I had to um, I had to say, okay, that's not what the intention was for this, and so we're going to set it down for a while, and we're going to work on some other writing. But Angie, I've got to ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself because I'm sure your story. And so my father was uh, in the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, spent 35 years, and hit one of his last assignments was in Sault Ste. Mar- Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. So when you oh, said, nice. yeah, yeah, so you know that part of the um, one of the unfortunate things is, and and when you're a coasty kid like myself, you get to see. I mean, I graduated in a story, Oregon. We were in Juneau, Alaska. Um, I did a couple of years of high school in Savannah. But up there in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, which I'm guessing is probably near proximity to where you're from. About three hours north. I mean, that's way north. That's practically Canada. I mean, it's on the it is Canada. It's on the Canadian border. But but with that in mind, we get similar weather. It's February here, decidedly so. It's a mild winter. You know, it's only it hasn't really been below zero. We haven't had that much snow. But I have learned that life is what you make of it. So if you live here in the cold, it sounds like you've lived in a lot of cold places. Yeah, we've lived you, in a few. Yeah. Yeah, you just figure it out. We ski a lot as a family. We walk a lot. We just make the most of the outdoors and we bundle up. I refuse yeah. to go outside without looking as if I've got 15 layers on. Yeah. And I have a, uh, yeah, to think about it, I have a brother in law. A brother-in-law and a mm-hmm. sister-in-law who who've chosen to live in Michigan in one of those places way up there, and um, and I can probably and I think I can think of a, a university that we engaged with a couple of years ago that's way up there that um, has the interesting challenge of the the both the strength and the weakness of um, finding finding it difficult to recruit talent to come way up there, uh, but at the same time. Once you get up there, you sort of fall in love and never want to leave. Does that sound right? It's yeah. the people and our summers are just magnificent. They yeah. must be because that's what keeps a lot of us here. And it's only, you know, it's about a day, day long summer. <laughs> just kidding. It's about three months, <laughs> but it's just magnificent. So Angie, I'm sure we're going to talk about mm-hmm. your book. Um, Angie's for for my listeners. Angie's book is "Bet on You: How to Win with Risk." So I suspect your big idea or bold opinion is somehow tied to that. If there, if you want to go in a di- different direction, we certainly can. But we always ask our guests 
what's the big idea or bold opinion that you've got for us today? And that's usually the direction we take the conversation. Um, oftentimes, and, and certainly this is one of the cases, um, I don't know the direction you're going to go, keeps me on my toes and, um, and actually keeps me talking less. One of the things we've learned is we've looked at the at the at the library of conversations the less informed jason is the less he talks <laughs> so uh so what do you got for us today well my big idea is that what we don't know about risk and taking risk is holding us back in life one of the things that is really important about bet on you is the opportunity to demystify the concept of taking risk because often when people think about taking risk they get nervous they get anxious and they think about it entirely the wrong way and through my research uh, what's been really surprising for me is that we think it's this big thing like it's the opposite of reward like it's the downside of choice but the reality is that risk and risk-taking is the path to opportunity. And when you think about it, what is risk? It really is just a decision that leads you into uncertainty. And when you put it that way, you can think about all the different risks you've taken in your life. So rather than maybe seeing yourself as risk-averse, now imagine if you're into fundraising, asking people for money and resources, you might be a little bit more risk-leaning forward. But what if you really embrace this concept of risk? How might that how might your life change? And more importantly, don't just think about taking risk at work. Think about the other areas in life where you can apply risk. So maybe in your life, maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's prioritizing yourself and having a little bit more fun in your life. It's been interesting. I talked to a lot of different professionals about this concept of risk, and most of them say, you know what, I'm not taking enough risks in my life related to my own personal joy. I don't prioritize myself enough. I don't hold high my, you know, wants, desires, and needs. And therein lies a huge opportunity. So that was me talking for a really long time, Jason, but I there, love the big there, idea. Yeah, is there... Uh, one of the things I, when I think back on, on my own writing and research in the last couple of years, one of the things that I've become especially sensitive to, and perhaps this is a, a place to start um, our conversation um, that's perhaps relevant to what a lot of my uh, regular listeners are hearing me me talk about, um, and that is the, the idea that the 20th century, when we think about the 20th century, I, I would tend to be, as it, as it relates to the, the, the subject, um, the 20th century was about removing a lot of that risk, and it was about removing everything that scared us, right? So we designed systems, we designed processes, we designed machines, we designed algorithms, we, uh, you know, computers, uh, you know, everything that, that, that is in our world right now seems to be having been designed to remove all of that. And perhaps when, when, when we're talking to an author like yourself who's saying we need to lean into some of this stuff, is there perhaps an awareness? Is there a growing awareness of the people who are picking up your book sort of picking up on this idea that we just can't remove all of these things? Or or perhaps it's that um, now I'm just going a, a little existential and, and philosophizing here, but is it perhaps that we want some of the fun back in our life and that and that 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 by putting some of that risk in what scares us actually is what sort of brings the fun and the joy of life. Am I right? 
Yeah, there's so much there to unpack that you presented. <laughs> and I'll start with this concept of removing risk from our life. Think yeah. about the concept of helicopter parenting, which was pretty prominent, I'd say in the last 20, 30 yeah. years. Yeah. What we're teaching, you know, our, our children unintentionally is when you are presented with a threat or challenge that you can't handle it. And so we swoop in and save you from those moments and what happens as a result of that. Again, good intention parents, but the lingering effect of that is low confidence when it comes down to the idea that I need to take a bet on myself. I need to take risk. I might not feel confident. I mean, I'm just thinking about the stories that we learned growing up. And these are more than you know, decades ago, these are centuries stories. Uh, think about Little Red Riding Hood. You know, your mom tells you what to do. Stay on the path. Don't talk to strangers. Go to grandma's. She doesn't listen. She goes off the path. She talks to a stranger. Her grandma gets murdered. She escapes her own bloodbath. And the moral of the story, it couldn't be <laughs> less subtle. You need to do what you're told. But there comes a time in our life when playing it safe, and this is what I call the play it safe paradox, doesn't work. It's when you move from the passenger seat to the driver's seat in your life, and you want to start to enact your own vision for what you think success is going to look like. That's when it really comes down to you taking some risks. So playing it safe doesn't mean that you're going to have a bad life. I think there's a lot of people who, you know, got the right job and the right degree and, you know, try to white knuckle their way through life, and we're pretty happy. But we do get to a point in our life thinking, what's more out there? And that's where risk is required. So maybe yeah. in your career, yeah, go. Okay, Let, let's let's pick on that for a while. Because like, I love that. Uh, I'm going to repeat that, the play it safe paradox. Because here's, so in a lot of my consulting work, uh, a lot of my consulting work, I'm working, I'm trying to uh, con, uh, work clients out of what I see as a practice of trying to make fundraising safe. And 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 a lot of times what it comes down to is they're trying to create, they're trying to gather as much information as possible about the engagement, about the donor, about everything that's going to perhaps happen. You know, they're trying to basically forecast what's going to happen to the point where they feel like they're playing it safe. Um our firm uses what we call simple rules. It's not a concept that any, it's not something that we came up with, but we use simple rules. And sometimes I'll be sitting with a client, Angie, and the, and the client, and I'll be like, okay, this is what you do. And it's usually one of our simple rules is perhaps, I mean, it's literally a sentence, right? It's, it's no longer, none of our simple rules are longer than a sentence. And it scares the jujibis out of them. Um, the, the, if they don't have more information, if they can't essentially forecast where this is going to go, you know, they want, is, is that what it means to play it safe or is there something more to it? I think you're there. I also think too, like say that you have a quota that you're trying to reach and you only need, we'll just throw a number out there, 10,000 more and you have a donor and you only ask them for 10,000 just to meet your quota. I think that there's a lot of different ways that we can play this game called life. A lot of people play not to lose. They don't necessarily play to win. Yeah. And that's where risk taking can be dramatic in its positive impact. Trying to think not just what is, you know, you within this box that you're in, but thinking a little bit bigger, making a bigger ask, going for non-traditional donors, you know, not just the friends and family and regular suspect shakedown, trying to be really creative with your thinking. And so I think that's a risk. And so 
when we think about risk taking, a lot of it does require courage. And we tend to think of courage as just physical in nature, like in the Marine Corps, you know, lay your life down <laughs> for your right, country. Right, right. But I think about the risks that I take in life or have taken that scare the death, you know, scared me to death to the point that I didn't want to take them. So think about it. I, physical courage. I lay down my life for my country, but sometimes it's really hard for me to live out my better vision of my own life, to initiate a difficult conversation, to go off road, if you will, and try a new approach to get a different result. So I think that's fair to say that some people would rather die <laughs> than, than demonstrate managerial courage, intellectual courage, um, fundraising courage. And, and so it's just really interesting to think about that, what scares us. And you, you said something earlier about how we have in many ways tried to engineer our lives, um, moving us away from things that scare us. But where does our growth and development happen? It happens when we're out of our comfort zone, when we're a little bit afraid. Yeah. And, and, and we're talking about this. So I bet uh, you and I will sign off and, uh, and I'll log on to LinkedIn, for example. And my following is, you know, I've got lots of fundraisers as a following. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm able to sort of keep up with most of the sort of what the ongoing conversation in the fundraising community is. And um, there'll be a number of conversations going on at any time, you know, about the, you know, the desire for better compensation to work for organizations that perhaps know how to, uh, you know, create environments where we can thrive rather than where we're scapegoated for all of the problems. There's this, there's this unsettled dissatisfaction with, um, you know, the, the employment arrangements, that's probably the wrong word, but we just, we're not happy in a lot of the jobs that we have. Um, and in some cases, when you're reading through this, you kind of wonder just how much of this is, is playing it safe to use your term, you know, to, is it, is it playing it safe? And do we need to take some risks on demanding higher compensation? Do we need to take some risks on working for different kinds of organizations? Um, there's this internal challenge that um, I oftentimes sort of characterize it as sort sort of two different stories. The fundraiser is oftentimes challenged with the internal story, and that's the story with boards and bosses um, versus the story or the narrative or the conversation going on with donors. And fundraisers right now tend to be seemingly are more frustrated with the internal conversation, the lack of satisfaction from and responsiveness that boards and bosses are are demonstrating and and ultimately finding finding what they're looking for is is oftentimes going to come down to risk am i right you're right and i was you know as you're talking about internal and external i would like to go towards the internal internal so go a little bit deeper oh, right oh <laughs> yeah go for it <laughs> okay Thank you there. <laughs> but, yeah, that's really just placing a mirror a mirror in your face literally metaphorically however you choose and just ask am i thinking about this the right way and for which do i control and this is the marine corps mindset coming out in me i learned something really powerful in the marine corps that i'm responsible for all i do and all i fail to do and there's nobody else this is no excuse mindset that has served me really well in life and it's great right if i'm responsible for my success that's that's easy to be accountable towards but when things aren't working what are you willing to change about the situation i love that maya angelou quote you know if you can't change the situation you can always change the way you think about it and if you want to change your life you literally just have to start by changing your mind like what are you accepting 
that should be really unacceptable for you. If we think about organization change, and this is where I spend a lot of my time working with businesses on culture and developing leaders within culture, is you know being able to advocate for yourself, but starting what starting what with what you know you want, learning how to advocate for yourself, and then recognizing that if you're not happy, the only person who can do something about that is you. Happiness is an inside game. So if you're not satisfied with what you have, imagine another path to getting what it is that you want that's going to make you happy. Is that some is that sometimes part of the problem that we really don't want? You know, I I say in the introduction here on the podcast that, you know, fundraising is one of the least understood sort of professional paths in the nonprofit sector and um and then I oftentimes say you know, sometimes on the record and off the record, the world doesn't really give a damn how we raise money as long as the money gets raised. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so, um, and what that sometimes means, Angie, is is that we land in these jobs that, uh, and I talked about this in in that first book that I was referencing earlier. Um, we sort of land in these jobs with the aspiration to sort of change the world and to do things that that aren't necessarily. Um, aren't necessarily the things that we want to take risks at and fundraising actually requires us to take risks at things that we, that we never desired to take risk. You know, we never really desired to build, build relationships with privileged, you know, wealthy people on the, on the side of town that we didn't grow up in. That's really Mm -hmm. not what we signed on for. And so um, is sometimes the risk even even abandoning our own is that part of that internal internal story that oh yeah so yeah i love the the layers okay. that we're unpacking here because okay. i think that there's so again i don't think that we should ever take risks that aren't aligned with our values i mean that i would call it and this is not a technical term but that's like icky risk yeah. <laughs> if you're going to take a risk certainly come at it with values alignment. But I recognize I've raised funds for political candidates before. There's yeah. nothing um, there's nothing really worthwhile about that. You know, it's not like your money is going towards a charity or a good cause. It's going towards a candidate who probably is going to lose. You know, <laughs> most candidates who run in races do lose. So that's a hard ask. I've served on boards for um, museums and ran a program here in Northern Michigan called Battle of the Books where we had to go in the community. It's like, I know how hard it is. And if there's a values misalignment that um, might mean you do what you can in your job to keep your job. But I'd also like you to imagine, again, if you're not satisfied in your role, but maybe you are really gifted in fundraising, but maybe it's not a right career fit for you, know that you're doing one of the hardest things ever, and that is revenue generation in an organization. You can take that skill set wherever you want to go. You can even be an independent consultant if you wanted to and find your way to add your value to different organizations and causes. I think sometimes when we're unhappy, we can settle with, I'm just not happy and thinking that the problem is fixed. When if you give yourself a little bit of time and space to be creative, you can come up with some amazing solutions. And like looking, listening to your podcast and other podcasts, we talk a lot about this in um, Bet On You, is finding the right communities that you can tap into with people who are doing the things you want to be doing. And it might require you to take a risk, but 
a common misconception about risk taking is that it's like a rip of a bandaid, like you have to change your job, you know, quit your job, change your life. And that's not responsible risk. Responsible risk is giving yourself permission to go through these thought experiments about what better would look like and starting to dabble. Like true, sustainable, lasting change takes about a year. So don't have expectations that you're going to change your life overnight. That hardly ever works. It's like 90 day fiance. It's a train wreck. Never works. <laughs> and uh, in section two of your book, you have a chapter that's entitled choose your guides. I have to imagine that that, that chapter has something to do with the people that we're choosing to inform our thinking people like, you know, are we sitting on podcasts, listening to guys like me who don't know what the hell they're talking about, or are they perhaps reading books like yours? You know, is this, is this, there's an implied risk isn't there? There's an implied risk that we assume by by who we choose to listen to, and sometimes if we're listening to the wrong people, we, um, uh, you know, maybe that's actually a risk we don't want to have. Is that is that is that what we're talking about there in chapter four? Yeah, we we talk first and foremost about the importance of guides in our life, and we write about three different types of guides. First and foremost, are champions. These are people that you can access. It's not necessarily a mentoring relationship. I always think about getting a mentor, as it feels like such a heavy request to someone. And you know, Jason, if, Jason, if I were to ask you to mentor me, first off, we just met, and it seems like a big time ask. But if I said, hey, Jason, can you spend 20 minutes with me and just share with me how you're doing what you're doing and giving me your perspective, you'd likely say yes. So trying to find people who are doing the things you want to do, call them champions and see if they can meet with you. Most people love to share advice and guidance and would love that honor. The second group of people is um, big stagers. And these are people, Jason, like you, people who have a community, who have a microphone, who are cultivating really important ideas. Here is what I know. If all I did in the morning was listen to cable news and depressing music, like something like Morrissey, which I love, by the way, but there's a time and a place, and I did that for a year, I would probably be starting off my day in a negative state. But if I listen to, like, you know, podcasts like yours or Farrell Williams, Happy, I would be starting myself in a more leaning forward, positive state. And so there's a lot of things that we can choose in regard to our mindset is just what are we listening to to perk us up. The final group of people that we have are no choosers. And this is where we have to be really clear. Like we're not always surrounded by the most positive influences because we don't have a hand in selecting everybody we work with and around, but we can't always put a filter on who we allow influencing our positive, important opinion of ourselves. Because if it's anyone and everyone, we're going to find ourselves on a confidence roller coaster. Okay. I want to pick on that list for a minute because I always like these lists. I get these lists occasionally. I have to imagine that big stage or category for us in the nonprofit space, and my listeners know this because mm-hmm. I pick on those big stagers a lot. We're a professional. I'm oftentimes saying that the fundraising profession is sort of in its messy adolescence. We have a long history throughout the 20th century of relying on PR and marketing wonks to sort of drive our thinking. So we don't have a lot of people who've necessarily hailed from, um, fundraising because fundraising has only sort of become just like the nonprofit sector itself has only become a legitimate sort of career path just in the last say half century um and 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 i would tend to think that those big stagers uh are are perhaps the most problematic if we let them get too much in our head like i don't want to let if i think about that list of people right there and i could probably take it you know take take 10 minutes and i could figure out who my champions big stagers and no choosers are it's probably the big stagers that i've let occupy too much space in my head throughout my career is that 
Um, does that sound about right? It could it could be, right? Uh-huh. I think about the people who I consider as big stagers. Like I love Brene Brown. Yeah. And yeah. she she's somebody who I get a lot of inspiration from. I love Mel Robbins. Same thing. Sure. But I also have like a healthy diet of other podcasters too that I listen to to sort of round myself out. I think about big stagers is just really understanding like, what perspective do I need? And we don't really talk about this too much, just slightly in bed on you. And sometimes it's not to listen to anybody. It's listen to yourself first. Oh, so that's, the, that's that's risk in and of itself, isn't it? Right, just to let it all is. these people off the hook, isn't it? So yeah, I always think the best decisions start from yourself and are influenced and encouraged by the people around you. And so if you think about where you are right now, and maybe you're crushing it, and maybe you want to mentor somebody, great. That's an idea that you have from yourself. Then go surround yourself with people who are doing it successfully and see the practices that you can pick up on it. Or maybe you're not happy clarify your vision for you first and then figure out other people who are crushing it that you want to, you know, move towards or or take inspiration and guidance from. Okay. Before we move to the third, the last third of your book, I want to go. So the no, the, is it non-choosers or no choosers? Clarify. I want to make sure that my listeners understand who this last category is, because there seems to be some insight in that particular category that I want to make sure that I've got my head wrapped around um, as well as my guest. So we advocate for people taking risks in their life. And we like to think about taking a kaleidoscope approach. So imagine your life is like a kaleidoscope, multiple chambers, balanced chips. Sometimes though, in our own personal lives, if we think about having different chambers, work, you know, family, we're a little off balance. So if you think about that, you might discover through the process of reflection that maybe you're crushing it at work, but your personal life is a little off. And so that area needs a little bit of focus and a little bit of chips. And you try to reorder your life to bring more life into your day. And there are people who surround you. These are no choosers. These could be your spouse, could be your siblings, it could be your parents, it could be your children, could be your colleagues that you really need to draw on their support. Some people are going to be really excited for you. Some people are going to be pretty frustrated. So imagine, if you will, that um, I choose to go on a vegan diet because that was really important to me. Now, my husband is the biggest carnivore in the world. So (laughs) he might not be the happiest when I'm like, no, we're not going to go to the barbecue pit every Friday night. Um, So again, he's, he was, is what I would call a no chooser. Well, I chose him, but now he's with me. And those are relationships we all have to manage. And so we need to recognize that the people we're surrounding, sometimes they're going to be really excited for us. Sometimes they're going to be frustrated with us. <laughs> Sometimes they're not going to be supportive of us. I'd like to think that we all are, but you just have to have a plan to manage those. And it's not that you want to compromise your dream. It just means that you may have to negotiate how you achieve your dream a little bit differently. Okay, so let's jump to um let's jump to chapter 7. Realize uh realize when you're winning. You know, one of the things that I think a lot that I do a lot with my consulting work is I'm oftentimes working with a client that um, so I'm usually negotiating uh, a relationship with a frontline fundraiser, trying to set them up for success, and the boards of the bosses, as I call them, don't know that the fundraiser, while they're not bringing home, you know, they're not bringing back to the office large checks necessarily every day, they are winning. That they they are making significant strides, um, and there's a risk that. 
there's a risk that both the fundraiser and, and this gets back to your earliest comment about uncertainty. There is a, there's a degree of risk that fundraising of the sort that I'm oftentimes advocating for necessitates a significant amount of time of, of sort of settling into the ambiguity and the uncertainty of just navigating meaningful relationships. And if you're savvy enough and you know the work well enough, you can start to see signs that you're winning, that you're actually doing the right things. Is that what we're talking about in chapter seven or do you go in a different direction? That's exactly what we're talking about. And I think about the idea of winning, we tend to think about it as you standing on top of a mountain summiting and you're there for like 30 seconds before you have to get down. And the next step down, of course, isn't you're no longer on the mountain. And so those types of mountaintop moments are fleeting. And when you think about building your confidence in regard to risk, you need to experience winning all the time. And so I think as you're describing having these smaller wins, those are confidence building moments that you have to take the time and experience or else you're not going to be able to build your confidence. There's a phenomenon, you've probably heard about it, called imposter syndrome. It's like you get to a certain level and you don't feel your success is there. But if you're cultivating this winning mindset throughout your journey, even if it's a small thing, like maybe you gave yourself a goal of 10 new connections each day and today you went 12, like you nailed it, 12. You got 12 really solid leads or connections today. Like you need to chalk that down. Like that's significant. I think a lot of individuals, I think a lot of organizations get impatient because they want results overnight. But the best types of results happen when you implement a system, when you dedicate yourself to the disciplines of success. Results are going to happen. And you need to be building your confidence one win at a time. And the important thing I think about winning too is that doesn't imply that there's a loser. You know, like you're, you winning doesn't mean somebody else lost. And I'd rather like to frame it as you winning means that you're succeeding, that you're getting confidence, that you're feeling successful in your pursuits. I think it's a really important distinction. Yeah, let's sit on that one for a minute. I'll go a little personal on you. So my own struggles with imposter syndrome, what I've had to figure out, and let's let's see if this sort of winds out your book. So um, I've had to realize when I think about, I, I remember we had a guest very early on when we launched the podcast in 2018. I, I think Sam was probably guest number 25 or something. And she talked about imposter syndrome. And since since Sam had this, con- Sam, uh, Sam Laprade, a lot of my listeners will know who Sam is. Um, we had a conversation about imposter syndrome and a number of other things, and, and that, that conversation has continued throughout our sector at major conferences and so forth. Um, but I think the imposter syndrome sort of thing for me has been um, being more aware of the part that I'm trying to play. Like, I think even some of the risk, like, I, I, it's, it's not so much that, uh, you know, and, 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 and maybe you can pick on me for a minute. I don't mind. We're, 20, we're 32 minutes into this. I know you well enough. I trust you. Good. Um, I, <laughs> I, I think it's been part of, part of my, my own journey has been sort of the risk of playing the part that I know that I'm rightfully suited to play um, and not trying to play a part that I wasn't designed to play, that I don't desire to play. Um, and, and, I, and I suspect that there's got to be a number of places where that's the message that comes through in your book, um, that, um, that sometimes certain parts are not for us. And until you figure out that part that's rightfully yours, you're probably going to feel, feel like a fraud. Am I right? Yeah. I think the question that 
rings through my head right now is whose life are you trying to live? Oh uh, yeah, that's very what good way to put it. Yeah, and, I mean, you know yes, the life yes, that everybody that. else <laughs> wants you to live, or yes, the life is. that you were put on this earth to live. And I think that's a byproduct of self awareness and. That type of awareness just doesn't happen, you know, on a Tuesday when you carve out two hours between two and four to think about yourself and develop self-awareness. That to me is, is a journey and it's a wonderful journey. And it's possibly one of the most important journeys we at the stage in our lives and our careers can go on. I always, so I've been facilitating leadership development courses for many years, we'll say, <laughs> many years, <laughs> decades. And the most interesting leadership conversations I'm engaging with right now is just helping people recognize that you've been so busy, you've forgotten yourself along in the journey. What are your strengths? What are your sweet spots? Where is your intelligence thriving in your work? And having awareness of that, you can start to predict and put yourself in positions where, Jason, as you're talking about, where you feel you're going to thrive. It's the part that you were put to play. Yeah, Angie. So your book is Angie Morgan, Bet on You, um, How to Win with Risk. Angie, the question I always like to ask authors and consultants and others who are imposters like yours, who's the person that you uh, – I also want you to, to direct us to the place where we want to buy yeah. it. But what I really want to hear from right here at this particular point as we begin to wrap this conversation up is who do you want to be reading this book a week from now? So they're listening to this conversation. They're probably a fundraising professional. They're probably in places like – you know. Madison, Wisconsin, or Detroit, Michigan. So they're not too far from where you're at. Um, uh, uh, you know, they might be two or three years in their career. Um, uh, you know, who knows? But uh, they're listening to this conversation on the way to work. Who do you want that person to be? I think the perfect person for Bet on You is somebody who is ambitious but wary and knows that they need to make a change in their life to find more fulfillment. And that would, I think encompass anybody in any area of their life. So anybody should read this book. I guess that would be the simple answer. But really, if you feel like you've got a lot more life to live and you're wary about expressing confidence or risk-taking in a specific area, maybe it's in your personal life, maybe it's your partner, that there's an issue that you need to address. Maybe you are crushing it at work, but you're not having any fun. Or maybe you're stuck in your career. So any area where you feel you need to confront the situation and decide how to take some risks, that would be the ideal reader. Is there a lot of us in sort of this post-pandemic, post-2020, you know, we've spent a lot of time here on the podcast talking to people who've been, uh, we've all been affected by the events that transpired during 2020, uh, you know, starting with the pandemic, uh, moving on to the events of the summer with with the George Floyd murder, moving into those elections that let a lot of us down. Um, is there a lot of people that need to be taking on greater risks in order to just find that place in the world where they need to be now differently than prior to 2020? I feel that right now in this world, there's a collective sentiment of exhaustion and burnout. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, And yes, and I think often that can signal a couple things that you're doing things that are either inauthentic or aren't joy producing for you, or you really are just burnt out and need to make a change and maybe me dial back your career and dial up your lifestyle. Interesting. If you dial back your career, that's not going to derail you. You might even be a more productive, 
productive and successful professional, if you bring some life into your life more, that's a risk. I think for all of us, we get to a stage in our career where the lever that we've pulled on all the time is hard work. So we don't know that there are other levers that we can pull on to be more successful. So letting go of that lever and reaching for the one that says joy, we have to trust that that's going to allow us to still maintain our level of performance. So I think that that's where a lot of people, I feel. And also, we also got a flavor, most of us did at least, of what a little bit more harmony looked like in our life. We don't want to give that up because that does require risk too. Yeah. For my listeners, one more time, the name of Angie's book is Bet on You. Bet on You, that subtitle, uh, Keep uh, How to Win with Risk. Bet on You, How to Win with Risk. Angie, the other question I always like to wrap up with is sometimes authors are opinionated about where we send them to. So do we put a link in Amazon, send it to your your favorite pub, to your publisher, or do we send them to your website? Where would you like people to go yeah. to find your book? You can go on Amazon. And if you want to stay engaged with me, it's actually, I took a risk during the pandemic. I remarried. So now it's Angie Morgan Witkowski. So I'm keeping the Morgan around, but decided to add a very large Polish last name to mine, which is um, (laughs) every every young girl's dream is to marry a man with a Polish name. Yes, yeah, so we will put that we will put that information in the show notes, Angie. Um, it has certainly been a pleasure. I have enjoyed this conversation, and you're certainly welcome back anytime. Jason, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent, challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.